The War of Independence between Britain and America ended with the Treaty of Paris in December of 1783, but the official ratification of the peace accord was delayed for several months due to political logistics and persistent bad weather. Annapolis, Maryland, the makeshift U.S. capital at the time was snowbound, preventing any sort of assembly of congressional delegates to ratify the treaty. While across the Atlantic, communication was slowed even further due to storms and ice. On May 13, 1784, Benjamin Franklin was at last able to send the treaty to be signed by King George. In between that time, he was able to reflect on the current climate of 1783 and 84, in which he wrote that there seems to be a region high in the air over all countries where it's always winter. But perhaps the universal fog and the cold that descended from the atmosphere to blanket Europe might be attributed to volcanic activity in Iceland. You see, this was the first ever public speculation linking volcanic activity to the weather. And people didn't really believe in that link, and the link was pretty much dead in the eyes of the academics. 200 odd years ago, no one had grasped the potential, not even Franklin himself had grasped the idea of a global impact from a volcano located in the Far East. Two decades after the volcano in Iceland erupted, the world would bear witness to the greatest eruption of the millennium. Mount Tambora, located in the Simbawa Islands in what is now Indonesia, blew itself up with such an apocalyptic force in April of 1815. Barely reported, no one linked that this eruption would leave a cascading worldwide weather disaster. For three years following the explosion, to be alive in any corner of the world meant that you were starving or you were dying from disease. In England, 1816 was nicknamed the year without summer. In New England, it was nicknamed 1800 and froze to death. Germans would call 1817 the year of the beggar. Tonight, on the conversation before the world ends, we'll be looking at the explosion of Mount Tambora and how it gave rise to the opium trade, how it changed art, created the genre of gothic fiction, and change the political and geopolitical landscape of the world for years to come. I'm your host, Kareem, and welcome to tonight's episode. Okay, guys, and welcome back. Like I said on the top of the hour, my name is Kareem. And it's Eamon here, guys. How's it going? So to kick off tonight's episode, let me ask you this. Um, when you think of butterfly effects, besides the classic Ashen Kutcher movie. Classic. What's, what, what would you give as an example of a butterfly effect? I think the most common one would be Archduke Ferdinand assassination. And like the ripple effect it had over the years. And until now we're feeling it, right? And had he not taken that turn and had the driver not taken this and had he not stopped at that bar in front of the bar where he was to get shot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, had just you avoided certain turns, how would the world have been? Right? So I think that's the most common. Probably a lot of people would think of that right away, right? Let me ask you this other question. What do you think is the most well, when you think of volcano eruptions, what usually comes to mind? The Icelandic one not long ago, right? The yeah. The one that yeah. was, uh, was it 10 years? 12, 12 years ago. 
12 to 13 years ago, was it? I think it was 2010, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I remember you were going to uni that year. Yeah, and I got stuck uh, because I couldn't uh, yeah. fly out. I mean, and then, of course, there's the infamous... Uh, the Pompeii. Pompeii volcano. Those are uh, the immediate two that come to mind, right? Okay, so have you ever heard of Mount Tambora? You've mentioned it, but I, I haven't, not in a deep sense or in any kind of sense at all. So Mount Tambora is a volcano in um, in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. It kind of it was technically the biggest eruption to happen in modern, in recorded history. Really? Yeah. So it kind of uh, the next. I think the next famous one is Karkatoa, but apparently even that one was uh, nothing compared to Tambora. And the thing is about Tambora is because it's barely studied. We barely, like when we study the 1815s or the early 1800s, it's always about Napoleonic War. And was it in the 1800s, the eruption? Yeah. Okay, okay. And we study about the Napoleonic Wars and the effect that had, but no one really mentions what was happening in the Far East and how it affected. So, like I said, this was kind of a big eruption, so big that um, I think I could make a claim that without it, there'll be no heroin. Wow. Yeah. So there'll be no grunge music. Yeah, of course. <laughs> no no music at all. Exactly. 90s, so yeah. um if you don't mind, as always, I'm gonna take you through a small story. Sure, let's hear it. And we're gonna talk about Mount Tambora. Let's do and it. And the way it has affected our world today. Cool, cool. So our story starts off on April tenth, eighteen fifteen. To set the scene, Napoleon Bonaparte just escaped the Isle of Elba and he was on his way back to Paris to prepare for his sequel, to reclaim Europe. And he raised an army of a half a million men with an aim to go back and reclaim the land that he lost. That same day in Vienna, aristocratic elites were also up to their bad habits of covering up the continent between them. And they were dealing lands back and forth like they were Pokemon cards, you know. Uh, Duke of Wellington, on the other hand, had rushed from Vienna to Brussels in order to organize an army to stop Napoleon's second coming, only to find that the city was devoid of troops and any sort of ammunition, after, of course, being exhausted by 20 years of conflict in Europe. So meanwhile, on the eastern side of things, on a remote island on the outpost named Simbawa, on the east of Java, there was a small kingdom called the Kingdom of Sagnar, I think that's how you pronounce it. Usually, April means that farmers are getting ready to harvest their rice. People were cultivating beans, corn, rice, and cash crops like coffee, pepper, salt, and cotton. You know, and Simbao was also famous for its horses, which they were trading with the Chinese, the Cambodians, and the Vietnamese, or what would become Cambodia and Vietnam. Mm-hmm. To give you a brief history of the island, and let's just say for character development's sake, sure. Simbao was settled by people from the neighboring islands of Java, Celebs, and Flores about 400 years ago. So it's relatively a young island, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was a densely wooded forested area, and it was converted to a rice paddies and grassland for livestock. Sambawa was also famous for its large multi-ethnic communities and languages. For example, the people in the north and eastern part of Sambawa were nothing like the western part in looks or language. So the island was pretty much... Um, in control by the people of the celebs who used to exact a heavy tax on its people until the Dutch came, 
the Dutch never really gave a shit about Simbawa, but they just wanted to um, dilute any power of the region, you know? Yeah. And of course, the island had to deal with the pirates of Sulu who would kidnap people and sell them into the slave market. And the slave market in the East Indies is also the second biggest slave market system in the world after, of course, the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. So there was a big slave trade happening in the East Indies. Yeah. And then in the middle of all this, there's Mount Tambora, which is um, during the last few years, it started to rumble from time to time. And it would shoot up dark clouds from the summit. Why did this mountain start rumbling up or waking or waking up, as they say? Well, according to local opinion, there was different reasons. Some thought it was a celebration between gods, a marriage of gods. Others thought it was angry gods. And a very creative story was that a sheikh once went to Zimbabwe and was offended that there was dogs in the mosque. So he went and prayed. And <laughs> that's how um, the volcano started Is rumbling. that a legit story though about the sheikh? Yeah, that's actually one of the legends of like the area. Don't forget that back then they were... They were Islamic state. Islamic yeah, yeah. country, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so so this is where we are. April 5th, 1815. We're talking about around the evening time, the Raja of the Sangar kingdom uh, and his servants were cleaning up for dinner and the Raja pretty much heard an enormous thunderclap. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking at first it must have been some kind of cannon from a pirate ship, he, he ran out to, the, to see what was happening, only to notice that everyone was staring at the mountain. Okay, and he saw that flames were spewing from the summit and it was lighting up the dark skies and the earth pretty much there was like a minor tremor or a minor earthquake and there was a deafening sound which was pretty much like as they described it it was painful to the ears how far did that sound travel um i'm not sure but like the, this is only the first eruption this is the april 5th eruption okay 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 um for three hours huge vapor of fire would come from the mountain until dark mist of ash blended into the sky blackened out any stars that were available wow. then in a heartbeat everything stopped over the next few days the volcanoes would every now and then bellow out something but it wasn't something um chaotic you know it wasn't something there people just had the villagers just took up to cleaning the thick film of ash and dust from their rice plants and life was beginning to go back to normal according to the captain uh bima they heard the thunderstorm from a distant island on Java, and they were alarmed by the events. Um, so he sent an official named Israel to investigate. And on April 10th, while he was in Sangar, Israel decided to walk up the slopes of Tambora to see what was the problem. Um, Courageous man. Yeah. At 7 p.m., he would become its first known victim. Within hours, in the village of Kotoa, along with, the villi- along with other villages in peninsula, vanished out of existence. Three columns of fire burst uh, with such a roar, uniting the ball of fire with the, with the stars, so you can't even tell what's happening. The volcano blew half of its top off from the eruption. The mountain began to glow as liquefied rock came rushing down the slopes. 8 p.m., a hail of stone the size of two fists mixed with hot rain and ash fell on the land. Poe would later describe the scenario as the mountain reverberated around us as torrents of water mixed with ash fell from the sky. Children screamed and wept, and their mothers too, believing the world has turned to burning ash. So apocalyptic yeah. for them, yeah? Because then, no matter how far they look, it's all gloom. Because like, you could see maybe the volcano on one side and empty skies at the other. No, their whole sky was covered. 
Exactly, yeah. On the northern and western side of the slopes, tens of thousands of people had drowned in a vortical hell of flame. Ashes and magma pretty much swept through the land. In 2014, a village was discovered under three meters of volcanic ash, and they found bones of a couple turned to charcoal from how hot it was. The sad thing is the bones they found was a woman preparing a meal for her family. Yeah, to the east of the mountain, currents of rock and magma generated an enormous phoenix cloud of choking dust. The magma eventually poured into the rivers. A second explosion of steam and ash rose and engulfed the whole peninsula and trapping everything inside it. So everything was inside a black smoke of ash. Then, of course, things could only get worse. A volcanic hurricane uprooted trees, launched them like burning javelins into the sea. Uh, horses, cattle, people all flew upward in a fiery wind. Uh, and if you survive that, you're facing a giant wave of tsunami. Um, a British ship sailing offshore the, fl- offshore the floor state reported that while coated in ash and being attacked by volcanic rock, um, they watched a 12-foot tsunami wash over the island. Wow. I mean, it's because the volcano is pretty much just an earthquake. Because, yeah, there's also the tremors from the earthquake just exploding everything from beneath. Yeah, yeah that's how a volcano erupts. It's just an earthquake under a... Yeah. So, yeah. And if that wasn't enough, and if you somehow survived all that, the island began to sink and collapse onto itself. That's what people had to live through. The Raja somehow survived all this. And him and his family pretty much, I don't know, just that rich dick mentality of he took his horses and ran away first. But he would become our eyewitness on what exactly happened because he would meet Lieutenant Phillips of the Royal Navy, the British Navy. And he would describe to him what happened, giving us the only eyewitness report of what happened that day. He would be later rewarded with rice, which he would give to his uh, the people who survived from his thing. The following days after, the village villages became ghost towns. Whoever survived had to deal with the poisonous island that was left in the wake of ashes. 40,000 people would die later from starvation. And in the weeks to come, over 100,000 pe- people would be dead. The hot magma gushing from Tambora, collapsed, collapsing chambers, consumed the whole island, extending 560 kilometers within a few hours. Um, it buried the whole civilization in the northeast. Forests, villages buried under it. Its mountain shell imploded, and on April 11th, Tambora sank within itself. The mountain it sank into itself. So like finally defeated itself. Yeah. Um, Very video gameish. A volcan- Yeah, pretty much became a volcanic sinkhole. Mm-hmm. The largest one. It's and it's considered the largest one since the glacial period, 12,000 years ago. Shit. Yeah. It losing about a kilometer and a half of its height completely. Uh, the explosion in April 10th was heard hundreds of miles away. There were navies who got up thinking the explosion was an attack on them and they were preparing to fight a war only to go out and see that there was nothing happening outside. Yeah, pirates thought that it was cannons being shot by the Navy. So they were all getting up for war uh, from these explosions. And there was also reports from the, from northern Indonesia where people thought the sky was falling. Uh, in the east, there was reports that there was no birds left. Yeah, visibility shrank by a few feet so you couldn't even see. In front of you, you couldn't like see. Fog exactly, smoke, yeah. Pretty much, Tambora moved westward. It descended over Bali. Darkness descended over over 600 kilometer radius for two days. Ashes would fall and expand and cover an area of almost the size of the United States. Uh, British officials who were conducting business meet had to conduct business meetings by candlelight, um, while people were dying from lack of crops and the poisonous air. There was nothing to breathe. Sure. Like, so imagine there was a I mean, whole. There's pe- no sunlight for two days in an area that was probably familiar at that time for harvesting, right? Tropics, uh, tropics weather, right? Like yeah, they yeah, weren't sure. used to it, and with the lack of sun, that means temperatures drop, right? Mm-mm. Mess up the whole ecosystem, even for a day. Exactly. So imagine there's a whole people and their language disappeared off the planet. Shit. 
when the sun broke through, pretty much it rose on a whole new landscape. The whole geography was changed. It's like it recycled itself, huh? Exactly. So, like, for example, 16 years after the eruption, the northern eastern part still resembled something of a war zone. Half a century later, a visitor to Sembawa found that the population were mostly the population who were mostly there were slaves who sold themselves into bondage in the aftermath of the eruption. The incident would forever be called the time of the ash rain by locals. So Tombora begins as a natural disaster story, right? It's the Pompeii of the East. But Tombora's story has also been told in notes and sketches. You know, there are gaps. But the eruption of the 1815 survived in so many countries in so many different languages, as you'll see. Part two. Let's jump a year. We're in 1816, the summer of 1816. An 18-year-old Mary Godwin traveled with her lover, Percy Shelley, to Switzerland, escaping the horrible shit weather of London at the time. And another reason why Mary Godwin was going was because her stepsister, Claire Claremont, wanted to reunite with her lover who was banished to Switzerland because of his uh, disgraced and humiliation repu- humiliating reputation. The mad, bad, and dangerous to know Lord Byron. Mm-hmm. So when they got to Geneva... They found that the weather was pretty dismal, right? And this was uh, communicated with the other sister in London, describing that the weather was, or in what Mary Godwin would say, amidst a violent storm of wind and rain. The villagers were complaining about the cold weather and the lateness of spring. Her sister would also respond that London also suffered from the same thing. And up to this point, it was considered the coldest and wettest Geneva summer since the recording of weather. And it's not that dry. I mean, news doesn't pass. There was no... Exactly. So you wouldn't know that this volcano... There's no social media or any media. So you just don't know what's happening. You just think it's bad weather. Yeah. So the relationship between volcano and climate, of course, depends on the scale of the eruption. And the volcano eruption in Tabor exacted shit and gases high enough that it reached the stratosphere, brother. Mm. You know? And uh, these would enter what we call the meridional currents of global climate system. Now... I'm not going to get too much into this because I'm not a geologist. Mm-hmm. Um, but to pretty much what happens is that it reached so high up that Tambora's eruption like launched rocks and gases 40 kilometers into the stratosphere. Is it the stratosphere, man? Is it the ionosphere? It shot up so high. So high that the current would move it across, you know what I mean? So, of course, in the 18 months following the eruption, the ejecta or whatever, like the stuff that spewed out would pass across the world, you know, and including into the poles, you know. Western Europe felt like a biblical style hell of a summer in 1816. So let's go back to our story. Um, maybe give a little flashback like on why this is happening or what's the through line between that and that. So Mary Godwin, Byron and co. were locked up in their castle pretty much having to deal with the worst summer um, in recorded history. Not knowing what to do, they decided to entertain themselves by seeing who could conceive the best ghost story. On June 18th, 1816, Byron would write an outline of a story that would later turn to a book by Polidori called The Vampire. Interesting. That would later inspire Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm-hmm. And they had no sunlight then. No. So that's why, and they couldn't get out because there's no... Okay, I see it. Okay, so, but the bigger story, of course, is that for Mary, the lightning and the thunder would help her pen a horror story of her own that would eventually be Frankenstein. Exactly. And the book would electrify and scare a whole generation of people to come. Yeah. During also that time, Lord Byron would also write one some of his famous poems. But that's just a tiny footnote of what's to come from the story. See, the eruption will also affect weather throughout Europe. For instance, the summer of 1816 in England, as we said, the weather was also horrible. 
Crops were being damaged by storms and minor floods caused by heavy rain. Luke Howard, the father of meteorology, would later describe that the weather in London compelled people to go to holiday in Europe after the Napoleonic Wars. But when he also went, he saw that from Amsterdam to Geneva, he quotes, I had an ample occasion to witness the fact that the excessive rains of the summer were not confined to our own island, but took power or took sorry, but took place over a great part of the continent of Europe. From the sources of the Rhine among the Alps, uh, in the in the in the German Ocean and through space and through a space twice or thrice as broad from the east to west, the whole season presented a series of storms. So everywhere he went, he saw villages underwater and neighborhoods flooded. Scandinavia suffered; the farms suffered from severe drought. Churches in Danzig were full of evening prayers to alleviate, alleviate the weather. Exactly. Yeah. So if it wasn't flooding, there was severe drought. Just extreme weathers. There would be rainfall of hail and snow, and the snow was colored yellow because of the ash. Later on, it would be because of the ash of the volcano. Just but they didn't up. get it. Mm-mm. They just thought it was just some really shitty weather. So what was the economic effect of this? Well, the crops yields across Britain and Western Europe plummeted by 75%. Mm-hmm. In Germany, this resulted in massive starvation. Klaus von Klauswitz, a military tactician traveling back wrote, I saw decimated people, barely human, prowling the fields for half-rotten potatoes. 1817, a few German towns uh, rioted over the rumor that corn was being exported to Switzerland while the locals were dining on horse and dog meat. Half of the Swiss family's average income was devoted to buying bread. Uh, the price of grain would triple in 1817. This resulted in bakers being attacked by starving mobs who blamed them for jacking up prices. Sure. In May 1816, riots broke out in England with armed laborers holding banners with slogans for blood or bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, the price of bread in England jumped to sky-high record. In France, rain-soaked fields meant that grain crops rotted. You couldn't, walk a, you couldn't walk anywhere without seeing the increased numbers of beggars, mostly children, in the streets. A priest said, It is terrifying to see these walking skeletons devour the most repulsive foods, the corpses of livestock, stinking nettles, and to watch them fight with animals over scraps. The only thing that stopped the complete collapse of Europe pretty much was the shipment of grains from Russia. By some divine luck, Russia had escaped the worst of this, Tambora weather. And this could only but they could only alleviate so much, right? Situation yeah. was so dire that mothers had to leave their kids or abandon them in the streets. Uh, while others killed their kids because they thought it was the most humane thing to do instead of them dying from starvation. Uh, mothers gave their kids up in churches, thinking that they would, the church would be able to provide them something better. Others escaped the crisis by trying to immigrate to Russia. Others decided to go more westward to North America. And this was considered the first significant wave of European refugees to the United States. Really? Yes. The political spectrum of things also changed. Due to food sh- shortages and, and social in- instabilities, rulers started going to a more authoritarian right-wing shift or what would be considered right-wing today. So fear of agricultural shortfall also motivated political leaders to adopt a more strict policy, which was, of course, kind of like going back on what the French Revolution had created. Mm, it's like they blame the, not the weather, but they, think, they thought it was just a, a poorly managed political situation. They not, decided not the that weather. the only way to, like, you know how they say martial law, like in yeah, times yeah, of emergency? Yeah, yeah. They just went super dictatorship. Exactly. Yeah. Tariffs and trade walls would first emerge as a standard feature for European and transatlantic economic systems, which would, of course, come later to define pretty much everything. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, common people suffered a slow and torturous death caused by starvation. I mean, if you did survive, then you'd have to fend off diseases because your immunity is so depleted at this point. Percy Shelley, while in Geneva, would describe beggars that he saw as barely human creatures, deformed and crooked. Now, I don't know if that's like if he described this to Mary Godwin and she would later describe Frankenstein as like a half deformed human, barely human. But it won't be far to see that like, they would see beggars and that would conjure up the image of monster. Uh, this was also around the same time Byron would write his famous apocalyptic poem, Darkness. Darkness, everybody! Darkness is spreading! Byron was sitting on his balcony watching the sunset and wrote his apocalyptic poem. And in Byron's poem, he pretty much imagines the erosion of the human sociability in a toxic landscape as it was predicting the next three years or something. Like he was far from the last person to predict this. Italian astronomer also predicted that the world would end on July 18th, 1816. And, uh, and he said that's when the sun breaks apart. It was called the Bologna prophecy. And you could see that by the time when 1816 hit Italy, people began to think that the prophet was actually um, onto something and that the sun was breaking apart because there was no summer. I'm sure they thought it, this was the last year. Exactly. So what Tamboya did was that it fueled religious zealotry and it started getting more people into going back into religion. This was a suffering. Like repent, especially after the French Revolution. Exactly. That, people probably went more decadent. Exactly. Yeah. And, it's, and it was like people thought this was, so it kind of brought back a kind of a religious fever mm. into the situation. I mean, I would too. I mean, if like this random things are happening and he didn't know any scientific explanation. So you're pretty much stuck with it's that. It's very Old testament -y. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. If a person supports organizations which reflect communist teachings or organizations labeled communist by the Department of Justice, she may be a communist. If a person defends the activities of communist nations while consistently attacking the domestic and foreign policy of the United States, she may be a communist. If a person does all these things over a period of time, he must be a communist. So another effect of Tambora was in 1817, uh, a German named Karl von Dres, I think is how you pronounce it, began experimenting with a type with a vehicle that operated on two wheels um, because of the shortage of horses due to the famine and the, and the inability to feed the livestock. And he pretty much wanted to address the transportation issues. He, he's created what would become officially the modern day bicycle. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And it was a direct relation because... Because of uh, because at the time... The harvesting issues, which led to... Grain shortages, which meant a lot, a lot more people couldn't feed their horses. Okay. So okay. it resorted to people either eating their horses or pretty their much killing dying. their... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he wanted to tackle this issue, so he created a two-wheeled vehicle that would be essentially called the dandy horse or the hobby horse. Interesting. Which yeah. would officially become the the blueprint for a bicycle now his bicycle weighed about 23 kilograms which is pretty heavy it was made uh, his wheels were made out of wo uh, wood not rubber okay and the seats were constructed from leather affixed with nails and a wooden frame on the bike 
Oh, that'll be pretty yeah. interesting. So, yeah. and the chains to drive the wheel did not exist yet in this early model, but it propelled by two pedals attached to both sides. So it was like kind of like the pedals were moving against each other to move the wheel forward. I probably have to Google that image, but yeah, what was it called at the time? A dandy horse. Dandy horse. All right, yeah. I'm just gonna Google that on the side. We'll keep going. Okay, so Darius actively promoted this early bicycle to the public, and and then afterwards to in France and England, mm-hmm. and it became widely popular. Okay. Do you find the video? Yeah, yeah. Do you see how it looks like? Pretty cool, actually. Right? Yeah. It looks weird when the guy was riding it. Yeah, it, he kind of looks like he's standing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, I remember I had to Google it too because I couldn't picture how it would have looked like. Yeah, so he uses the pedal to, to move it around, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so there's no There's chain. no pedal, no, no, his, like, his legs are on the wheels. Yeah, so there's no chains to move the wheels, so his kind of the pedals were on the wheels itself. It's, it's literally, uh, he moves the wheels with his legs as he goes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that must have been uh, a hazardous, yeah. On a 23 kilogram, that's a, that's yeah, a workout. Yeah, 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 that absolutely is, that's intense. So he went to... Like promote it in Germany, France, and England. Dragons then, uh, <laughs> and he became quickly popular, yeah. um, selling it for twenty five percent share. Yeah, imagine that. Just imagine <laughs> like Kevin O'Leary, but back then, yeah. fuck that dude. So an English man named Dennis Johnson mm-hmm. was inspired from the guy uh, from Carl uh, von Dreis's um, design. Mm-hmm. and designed his own version of a two-wheeled vehicle to sell to his fellow countrymen. And Johnson's bicycle became more popular because it was kind of considered... Um, like, like, they became popular because he tried... To, he kind of expanded on it and kind of made it, like, made it smaller, more mm-hmm. feasible. But then people thought it was a public safety threat to pedestrians. So it got, it got banned during the 1820s. I can imagine it being reckless. I mean, you still have cyclists now who are quite reckless. Yeah, and by 1860s, bikes using wooden frames... But the wheels were constructed of metal, were, were a common sight in the streets of England and Europe. Mm-hmm. And in 1862, a German named Karl Ketch introduced the new innovation, which would be the chain-driven pe- pedal assembly, which would be in the modern... So it kept improving and improving. Yeah. yeah. So that's like to end it on kind of like a high note. So these were the effects of Tambora. In Europe. In Europe. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, so now we're going to go into outside of Europe and part three, I guess, of this, this deep dive. So what were the effects of Tambora outside of Europe? Well, starting immediately after its eruption, Tambora's volcanic dust veil began its westward drift. So it was moving from west of Indonesia to China and uh, what would be Cambodia and Vietnam and these places. And despite the devastation it caused European farms, in South and East Asia, it wasn't so much the case of like a disruption in the, in the heat or like the temperature of the climate, you know? What kind of affected, or what was affected by Tambora was monsoon. For example, like if we focus on what would be like considered the Bengal region of India and mm-hmm. Bangladesh today, pretty much the monsoon was like a life-giving force to these places, you know? Life-giving. Yeah, because um, you, they depended on monsoon floods to cultivate the land for them, which yeah. would feed livestock and all so and so you know was the wind blowing westward it was blowing westward okay the monsoon was culturally and economically significant to the bengal river the people Mm -hmm. living on the bengali river Mm -hmm. you know what i mean yeah so in 1816 a year after no monsoon came and this was because um the volcano sulfate veil cooled the earth inhibiting evaporations from the ocean the sun wasn't able to evaporate water from the ocean to create rain to create the water cycle Mm -hmm. Um, so there was no 
the vital fuel needed for the monsoon to occur. Mm-hmm. Farmers along the Ganges plain waited in vain for the monsoon. And also people relied on monsoon ponds as drinking water since the rivers were almost polluted because of like the amount of humans who go wash there and the amount of bacteria in rivers and all that. Yeah. So for most people, the, pod, the ponds that would be created from the rainwater would be their source of drinking. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have that. No, they didn't. So pretty much when the monsoon didn't come, shit hit south. This meant the region was met with a heat wave, mm-hmm. bringing a second season of failed crops. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the drought pretty much destroyed um, their crops. Their crops, famine and misery began to grow in the Bengal region. By 1817, there was a bit of serenity in that region from January to February because there was a bit of rain and hailstorms. Again, the problem with hailstorms is that like, when it's a constant hailstorm, it eventually destroys crops. Mm-hmm. And it starts tearing up orchids of dates, bananas, and papaya. Constant raining that happened in January. Cholera was able to spread across the region. On top of that, in May 1817, the monsoon season came back. The problem is um, with its comeback is that it came back three weeks earlier than expected. You know, especially when it comes to farming, dates are so important for cultivation because a few months earlier, a few months after, it does destroy damage or it damages the whole cycle. The farmers probably wouldn't have prepared as well their crops for it. Exactly. Plant the right seeds and all that. So it came three weeks early and that the cholera had spread around the region. Of course, you know that disease tends to spread faster when it's a damp and wet atmosphere. Yep. So many people were pretty much caught up with the infections of cholera and bad weather. So people started moving more, more north and more west to escape the disaster. Mm-hmm. English clergyman who was around the time because don't forget it was also a part of an English colony he described it that the scene in the Ganges river of Ganges resembled a scene from Dante's hell and he said that um, people were dying from cholera at such a rate that they were all huddled to, the dead and the dying were all huddled together in a confused mass uh, several fires broke out consuming the bodies of the more rich and noble men who just died while the poor creatures who were expiring pretty much were trying to feed on whatever they could find but they eventually shared the same fate people's bodies were like dragged along the river which of course meant that they were eaten by alligators uh, many of the bodies fell victims to jackals and vultures like it was pretty much a hell on earth James Jameson physician living in Calcutta traced that the cause of the 1870 cholera to the abnormal uh, climates of the Bengals two years prior to the outbreak so he was one of the first people to say that I think the outbreak of the cholera happened because of events that happened from the last two years it was building up almost exactly yeah. and this was around the time where people would blame cholera on poor people filth or um, a failure of a nation to sanitize colonial parts of the country or colonial ports. But he was the first one to say, no, no, that weather also plays a factor into spreads of disease. Of course, yeah. <laughs> the li- this time. Exactly, because the confirmation of the link between climate change and cholera was something that would we come to expand on in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. You know? For, so now, in the years of 1817... Uh, epidemic would break into the southeast in places across the Burma and Siam, which is um, modern-day Thailand, mm-hmm. uh, where cholera victims clogged rivers and canals of B- Bangkok. Indonesia was still dealing with the aftermath of Tambora, but they also now on top of that, they had to deal with an outbreak of cholera, which is pretty much Tambora's second coming, you know what I mean? If it didn't kill people on impact the first time, it's like it's made the it... cholera would kill it. Yeah, yeah, it just made a comeback, you know? Killing, killing about 125,000 people in Indonesia. Sure. Cholera would hitch a ride along the trade routes. It would eventually go from Indonesia to the Philippines, to Japan, and eventually to China. By 1822, it would go into Russia, Paris in 1830, England 1831, and finally it would hit America in 1832. Sure, it's been everywhere. 
it's a, like a proper pandemic. Yeah. I could tell you an allegory about the cholera from a European perspective, mm-hmm. but I came upon a legend from the Bengal region, which I kind of want to share with you about the whole situation and of the cholera. Let's hear it. So there's a story that goes that a man was traveling on business from Calcutta to a village along the Ganges. And he was welcomed to, into the house of one of his associates who were living in the village where he was dining and being entertained. But he was kind of surprised by the absence of servants in the house. So he started to wonder who was cooking my meals. And when he requested a candle to go sleep, um, it was fetched to him instantly without anyone in the house really moving, you know? Mm-hmm. So undressing for bed, the guest looks out for the window and he, where he glimpses a dim figure of a man and a woman who passed by who passed by the garden on the side of the house without using any doors. So they would walk through walls. Ghosts. Yeah. So in terror, he was unable to sleep the whole night. And when dawn was able to, like, the first light was able to break through, he ran, he ran into the street and found that nobody was outside. Then it dawns on him that he spent the whole night in a ghost town. And all the townspeople have died from cholera and the village is silent in sleep. And he was the last man left alive. So this is like the legend of how, like how, how towns cholera, were, yeah. yeah. How, how much is spread. Exactly. Now, this was the effect of co- from cholera, or this was the effect of uh, tambora when it comes to disease. Another way it affected East Asia, or Asia, is in the summer of 1816, uh, the Chinese sky still bore a volcanic imprint, which kind of like created a very reddish sunset mm-hmm. for a while now. And one of the greatest achievements of China in its 2,000-year-old empire is that Chinese were were very good at keeping records of the weather and like um, so we have a good understanding of how the global impacts happened around the region from two thousand years ago. Wow! So, for example, um, we know that tropical Chinese islands in um, suffered from snowfall in the summer of eighteen fifteen. Eastern China likewise suffered from a record low temperatures and crop failures. In Shangxi, uh, corporate, uh, crop failures heralded mass immigration um, from the province. But out of all the regions, the most one that suffered was Yunnan, mm-hmm. which, is in the, which is in the southwest province of China. Temperatures destroyed three seasons of crops. Mothers had to sell their children or kill them so they won't die from starvation. While others wandered the fields feeding on white clay because that was the only thing Shit. they could eat. Wow. Yunnan was famous for its cultivation of rice, which, which relied on tropical weather. So anything below 14 degrees Celsius can cause damage. Um, food shortages meant that prices were hiked so people couldn't afford to eat. People resorted to eating soil because there was nothing left to grow. So And eventually by July, rain had come down. So there was kind of hope that um, things would go back to normal. But then that was followed with a snowstorm in the middle of July. It was so uh, chaotic. Yeah. Huh? Uh, so by 1815, the Qing uh, state, I think that's how you pronounce it, were ever fearful of like a social instability because of food shortages, you know? So they start commercialized food distribution networks uh, when the eruption happened and they kind of brought like, found, tried to find ways of like distributing food uh, along its states to avoid mass starvation. Mm-hmm. But because of the unprecedented wave of extreme weather to the region, the system cracked down. In 1817, the Queen Court lamented on the years of neglect and bad management on food networks that they weren't able to feed the people. Mm-hmm. They never saw it coming, you know what I mean? Yeah. So what kind of happened? So this kind of brought back into the zeitgeist an old Chinese poem called The Poetry of the Seven Sorrows, which was an ancient Chinese poem based on uh, Wang Can's poem on The Seven Sorrows. 
and the poem is about the suffering and atrocities of of the chaotic collapse of the Han Dynasty in 220 CE, sorry. And the seven sorrows refer to the five senses, the taste, smell, touch, sight, and hearing, plus bitterness and injustice. So it's kind of back in 1817, the popularity of the poem came back Mm -hmm. because people start relating to that poem. Of course, yeah. What was another effect on that region? Now shit has hit the fan so bad. Now, for the next part, I want to go back to Europe for just a second. In England, Fanny Godwin, uh, Mary Shelley's sister, was kind of, uh, her mental state was deteriorating throughout the summer of 1816, right? While her sisters were away in Switzerland and about to change the fiction genre forever, Mm -hmm. she was at home with her. She she lived in pretty much an abandoned and depressing home with her family. Mm -hmm. So Fanny would leave her house for Wales. And the following day in the Swansea Hotel, she wrote a note asking for her loved ones to forget about her. The next day, a maid would find her body dead from an opium overdose. In 1816, opium was pretty much imported to England from the Near East through the Mediterranean. But since the British deregulation of the Indo-Chinese trade, the global market for opium blew up rapidly. No one was following up. No one was keeping an eye on it. Exactly. With the Far East being the new center of production, from that point, the long powerful Chinese empire suffered a series of setbacks in the 19th century that would be called the, series of, uh, the century of humiliation. The time when they tried to cut opium, but it got into war with Britain to continue production and they lost wow. the opium wars. So where does Tambor fit in all this, right? So the Queen Court had long, cons- had long been concerned about the import of Indian opium uh, by the British into China. So prior to this, that means opium was pretty much cultivated in India and brought into China by the English. Yep. The, and the Queen Court tried to um, find a way to kind of control the trade along its southern ports. And by 1820, two years after the end of the Tambora famine, rulers at Peking were startled to receive reports that Yunnan was all of a sudden the hub of opium. So the government was, would implement an anti-cultivation program that year to curb the growing industry of opium. But of course, it failed. Now they start to ask what caused this sudden transformation and how could have this happened? In less than two decades, they went from growing rice to becoming a narco state. So how did they become a narco state? So clearly in the teeth of famine, opium was pretty much an irresistible temptation because um, poppies were wife for wife. (laughs) Poppies were worth twice, uh, twice as much per acre of yield than any average grain at the time. The benefits of poppies was they could grow in, in any climate you could provide them. They don't need to be in a tropical climate. So usually poppies are sown in the fall and opium flowers will grow to maturity in March. So you can see that they're a fast growing plant. Yeah. And they could be harvested from its sap in the summer, being the perfect supplement for conventional food crops, you know? Mm-hmm. In short, faced with the multi-year food shortage from Tambora from 1815 to 1818, Yunnan farmers found that they could neither grow rice nor buy it because it was too expensive. And circumstantial evidence suggests that they settled on opium as a solution for the food security problem. Hence the explosion of poppy farming in Yunnan in the late 1810s. But how did that cover the uh, food shortage? They decided that like, by selling opium, they could afford to buy Oh, selling food. it purely. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe they ate on poppy seeds? I don't maybe, know. Maybe, yeah. Okay, so pretty much... The cultivation of um, opium started with they would go to the mountains fields where they would usually grow beans and wheat and they would convert it in mass to opium production. And then thereafter, the opapi growers would make their way down to central valleys where they would colonize any land they could find to continue the, grow- uh, the cultivation of opium. To make more money. Exactly. Then what you find is that like throughout the years, Yunnan was pretty much growing nothing but opium at the time. And since it wasn't, it was only growing opium, and decided this would be its like 
the thing they would focus on, they started importing rice from other places. So, so what was the money they make from opium? They get rice for it, which was weird because at the end of the day, like it was a rice uh, province. Mm-hmm. So literally, it just abandoned. Even like after the whole Tambora thing got settled and the weather started to go yeah, back to normal, the, they the, decel- they the still decided the model open. was too successful. Exactly. So what would happen is um, an ethnic hill tribe from Yunnan, such as the Hamag, would uh, go drift southward into the Megong Delta and to the mountains of modern-day Burma, Thailand, and Laos. And they would bring with them seeds and the technology needed or like the know-how. You want to go technical? Mm-hmm. They'll bring the know-how on how to establish a new global capital for opium trade, eventually creating the, the world's first ever modern drug trade. Shit. This is where we end with China right now, right? We're going to go more east from China across the Pacific, and we're going to go to the United States and how the United States was affected from the volcano because literally no part of the earth was left untouched. Mm-hmm. If Tambora existed in any cultural memory of the United States, it would be considered the year without summer. In 1816, the most notorious and best chronicle extreme weather event of the century. Snowstorms swept the east coast of the United States in June. Crowds of desperate and hungry people who lived in Maine and Vermont fled the snowstorms that were up to 18 inches, and they decided to go more westward. So, of course, because of the food shortages in the east, grain harvest pretty much spiked in uh, prices, low supply, high demand. And the Atlantic market pretty much was doomed from high prices. No one could afford anything. It was considered the panic of 1819 because of the shortage, yeah which has pretty much triggered the first sustained economic depression in U.S. history. So a lot of people in the East Coast would move to the western part of the United States and they would invest heavily in agriculture post-1816. Pretty much they would lose the market eventually because that's when they start making a lot of money, right? They moved westward, which it wasn't really affected much by the Tambora events. and they Because would be- the wind was blowing west from Tambora. Blowing west, so it would hit the east, east coast, coast of, yeah, the, yeah, of the United understood. States. I'm just getting the geography yeah. of it. Yeah, makes sense. So the west of the United States was pretty much that, and that's where they were like making profits. Mm-hmm. But by but so why was there a panic in 1819? By then, the effects had kind of calmed down on the weather, and Europe was able to go back into the market. That means there was a rush of supplies of grain and harvest. Prices diminish, right? Yeah, you cause a panic in the market. The, econ- the economy goes into a recession, oversaturation of a product. In 1819, they pretty much collapsed the economy. Commodity prices plummeted. Thomas Jefferson, who was heavily invested in this, pretty much lost all his money and was heavily in debt. And he said, "Never was such a hard time of ordinary Americans across the country found themselves in in a condition of unparalleled distress." Wow. Now, due to the demand of grain to supply Europe, coupled with the bad weather, like I said, a lot of people started to move across west from the Appalachian Mountains. And this kind of also started the first ever United States real estate bubble. A situation, of course, complicated by the fact that there was no national currency at the time because they were still figuring it out. Exactly. And the national banks began limiting credit. And when European weather improved and demand for American grain dropped, again, the real estate market got affected by this. Of course. Of course. Overnight, 300 banks failed. Pretty much the depression that followed lasted several years. If it's the North Pole, it's Arctic. If it's the South Pole, Antarctic. To quote from uh, the book Tambora, one of the paradoxical effects of a major tropical eruption is that while the planet in general is cooled by a blanket of volcanic dust that drifts from the equator to the poles, the Arctic itself is drastically warmed owing changes to the wind circulation north and Atlantic Ocean currents. So what does that mean? The North and South Pole started to warm. And that meant in 1817 and 1818, the British who were trying to find a new way to navigate, decided that it was time for them to go to the poles 
navigate across the Arctic and the Antarctic. Since you know? it was warmer. Since it was warmer and they were able to go through. So they were getting excited with the idea that they could sail around Greenland. Huge icebergs that were pretty much there uh, were broken down and they were spotted floating as south as Ireland and New York. There was a prospect that they could go from a, from a northwest passage to the east and they thought that this would take a shorter time if they could go through there. Maybe they could be on the other side of Japan. And this was considered the holy grail for England who were like trying to find a different way to go instead of um, going from down under to Latin America they could go from north uh, northwest to asia and then the arctic reef froze on them oh, shit. so when they were doing there so the arctic reef froze just in time of the arrival of the first polar expedition by john ross in 1818 it fucked shit up of course yeah and it was considered one of the worst disasters i think there was a they did a tv show called the uss terror no the hms terror i think it, i think it's on amazon prime it's about the Failed expedition. Oh, sure. Yeah, pretty much ended in disaster. There was also an expedition in 1840 where all the soldiers who were, all the soldiers, all the sailors who were there were lost. And that was the last time Britain ever went for an Arctic exploration. Like no more. No more. So like to break this all down, the reason why I chose this topic came in like a conversation. I was listening to it in a podcast and someone men- mentioned how Mary Shelley was um, influenced from a volcano eruption. And I decided to go like read more into it. Mm-hmm. And the more I read into it, the more I was interested in it because it's Tambora, like it kind of really changed the whole world in a, in a way. Like if it wasn't like from art to literature to even like drug trades. It was on the span of 10 years pretty much. It yeah. was like from what, 1816 you said? Yeah, a, from 1815 was the eruption. Till 1822. Yeah, pretty much. That's the extremity of it all. But in those seven years, the lasting effect of those seven years. We feel it till now, you know. Yeah. And Has there ever been such an impactful seven-year nat- natural disaster? And that's the thing. Since maybe the comet or whatever, you know. Yeah, and I was reading an article from Slate.com. Mm-hmm. And they said, and to quote, and I really enjoyed this like this quote, because it's, they said, it's time to recognize Tambora as the Napoleon of eruptions. The implications for historians of a revised volcanic 19th century are immense. As with the global cholera epidemic, the growth of Chinese opium, Victorian era of polar exploration might not have happened at all, or life would have involved entirely different direction had it not been for the Tambor's climate wrecking detonation in 1815. And for, long, for two long centuries, the connection between these major volcanic disasters in human history have been obscured by two factors. No one at the time knew that this was an effect of a volcano because of the limited scientific knowledge at the time, and by the narrow and almost anthropocentric visions that, yeah. you know, we, and, we ha- and that's the thing. It's always human actions led to this. We're never, we never take into consideration that na- nature could also change our lives. Yeah, and we have now with global change, but uh, global climate climate change. But it hasn't been, especially back then. No one could have imagined all this was because of a volcano. I'm sure no one thought of that. Exactly. Like when the American snowstorm, no one probably at the time thought it was a volcano. Probably up until 200 years later, they no, probably didn't. Not even, I think the first time they like it was it was thought was 1960s. And so over a hundred years later, so no one at that time knew, and people have lived through that generation and their kids, not knowing what really caused it. That some island in yeah caused it, all this. All caused all this. To them, it was just bad luck and maybe wrath of God stuff. Exactly. And this, another thing that I want to um, bring up, and I don't know if this is kind of coincidental that like, because you know I started researching this, well, kind of almost two weeks ago, but then I got sick in between. And then to, like, I guess to my surprise, the last week with the whole forest fires that were happening in yeah. Portugal, 
in America, in Morocco. Yeah. Uh, pretty much there's a heat wave all Everywhere. across the world. Yeah. And we don't know like climate change or a cause and effect of proper climate change right now that we're feeling. And what's the five years implication of such an Exactly. Act? And now that now in the 21st century, we're beginning to like understand that there's this interdependence between us and nature. Yeah, it was by our doing with the fossil fuels that we're burning and the carbon footprint these corporations are inflecting on the earth. But again, it's this idea that like nature could change everything on a whim. If it wants to, yeah. And then over that, we also have like the effects of a pandemic like COVID and the spread of COVID. And again, it's like the spread of cholera, you know, the spread of Spanish flu. It's like we, we see these moments in history that keep repeating. Yeah. And it's not a globalization thing. It's just uh, the weather, man. Just it goes into nature and the environment and just gets away. And I think maybe at the end, like I'd like to say that, like now that we could like look and appreciate that from 200 years ago, a climate emergency changed the whole world, and that finally, like something like this, we something we could look back and learn from. But we haven't, I think. We haven't, but. Uh, there's a, there's a quote, again, from this late article that said, um, a changing climate changes everything. Pretty good one. I think it's time we begin to realize that. And I think this is the lesson that I took from the whole Tambora volcanic eruption and the other volcanic eruptions that happened throughout history, you know? Civilizations got lost, languages disappeared, people have died from starvation. And I think that if we don't change the way we're going, I think we're going to meet the same thing, man. Agreed. Like, we're dealing with a heat wave now in Saudi that it's, we find it very unbearable, you know what I mean? Look at London's heat wave right now. Yeah. And, and because I, wasn't it, what, 20 degrees one day, 38 the week after? Yeah. Such a jump is not normal, man. It's not normal. And I think the the more prolonged, the more we're going to... I've heard about, like, problems in uh, Africa because of, like, heat waves and issues like that. And especially with corona and, like, the way... Um, it has ruined cultivation of harvests and whatnot, you know? We have people who lost their jobs because of a pandemic. So, I don't know, like, who knows how, who knows where the future will go with this. Um, but yeah, but so this was uh, Tambora, and I wanted to share with you guys um, this interesting little volcano that, it is the Napoleon of eruptions, right? Yeah, exactly. The, the, yeah. the great big evil that no one talks about. Yeah, man, and uh, like you said, it's probably the most, the freshest natural uh, like uh, natural disaster that has, uh, that has that like has, had a global change on things absolutely yeah. absolutely because even the Icelandic volcano as big as it was shut down airports only and uh, I mean we're talking about it 10 plus years later and it's, the implications aren't as intense because our infrastructure was built for it so, but so in terms of volcanoes to a certain extent I mean we could have something as big as it again but will we be prepared about it just how we weren't prepared before a pandemic, obviously. Science wasn't ready for it because there wasn't enough money. So are we prepared for another volcano? Do we have the infrastructure and the science and the money to do it? I don't think so because no one thinks about it until it happens. And I think that's the problem with, um, like, again, I think for people who are, I don't want to say climate global warming deniers or climate change deniers, but like like actively denying just to go against the, the I think it just, like we said, that um, they, they forget that there's an interdependence or there's an interlink between uh, nature and, uh, and us and our events today. And I think they think it's normal. They think everything that's happening is going to be normal. I think what the difference is, is while Tambora was a natural, normal kind of volcanic eruption, what they don't realize is with the digging of fossil fuels and all that, we accelerate these extremes. Sure, extreme changes is going to happen. 
but we're accelerating the process. It shouldn't be happening overnight or such pace. It should be at a much smaller pace. And uh, we want we might not feel it this generation, but the next generation might. And I think that's what people aren't getting is that, yes, natural disasters happen. Yes, it's normal. Yes, we can't control it. But we could at least have the infrastructure to prevent it and slow it down. Uh, because as Tambora proved, if we don't, it will be quite catastrophic. And then you're going to get these idiots who say, but it innovated and created bicycles. And I mean, look, okay, so yeah. um, like to think, um, like to end it kind of on a positive note and that not all hope is lost. Like we said, Tambora's effects lasted five years, you give or take properly. Yeah. And yeah. then life slowly came back to normal. Yeah. So it's not the end. It could have been, but it's not, you know what I mean? And I feel like if we don't do something now, I mean, or if we don't stop what we're doing, we could have a chance where life could go back to normal, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So nature has a way of cleansing itself, you know? And I think that's one lesson we forget that you sure, like sometimes you could get, like it could destroy us, but also there's ways of it. It could re-cleanse it. It's like a reset. Exactly. And things will eventually go back to normal. Yeah. It's just a matter of us not <laughs> adding more damage to it, you know? Yeah, just let... Yeah, I, I see you. I, I feel you. So, so I think that's my takeaway that like... This is the... Um, this is my final takeaway from it. I agree. I agree, man. That eventually, yeah. I think this is a good metaphor for what's happening today in the world. I'm kind of surprised that like... I was surprised when I was finalizing these notes that I'd read about like these forest fires and whatnot. And I'm like, shit, like it couldn't have come on a better timing, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah so man. I think that's where we cap off. We cap off. Yeah. Anyways, um, any last words you want to say? No, I think you nailed it, man. Right on the bottom with the yeah. ending. Yep. Um, one thing, one last thing. Do you think Tambor would be a great band name? Was that Watson or Tony? Okay, one second, guys. Hey, Tintoon. Come, buddy. Where have you been? It's not like it to stay down, buddy. Sorry, guys. It was our producer, Tony. Hi, buddy. Hi, buddy. <laughs> okay, so I think, um, do you think Tambora would be a great band name? Uh, absolutely. I'm surprised there isn't a band right? name. Like a metal band name called Tambora. <laughs> so or I, a shoegaze band. So I tried to Google, uh, like, just out of curiosity, Tambora, and I'd write, like, musical band or band. Um, and, yeah, I didn't find anything. Tony, why is your paws wet? All of it? No, only the front two. Okay. Um, yeah, and I was surprised I didn't find any um, band named Tambora. Or The Year of No Summer. Like, The Year Without Summer. Which I'm like, yo, that would be a great album title, you know? Agreed, agreed. It's uh, Tambora, I think, is just forgotten in pop culture. Because even I didn't know about it. Yeah, well, I don't know. So if there's any startup band who wants to take a name, I'd recommend Tambora. Tambora. And you never know. You could end up touring with Gujira. Just give him credit for it. Exactly. Anyway, guys, I think uh, we should cap off tonight's episode. We would like to thank everyone who's listening in. Uh, you could listen to us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Deezer, wherever. You could follow us on our socials as well, which is all in the description below. All the notes and links of the episode will be also in the description as well if you want to do any further readings. And yeah, have a good night, guys. We'll see you next week.
word to describe what's happening, and that is panic.